The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to uh, Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of John 11. We started this chapter last week. It's a really familiar story about our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, Lazarus' name is literally Lazar, which is the shortened form of the Greek Eleazar. The Hebrew verb azar means to help, and El means God. Okay? So the idea is God helps. And that's kind of interesting because this guy was laying in a tomb dead and uh, he was resurrected. So that's kind of getting some help there. God helped this man, Lazarus. Now the key theological phrase of this passage, we're going to look at this morning in verse 25, when Yeshua says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And the, really the rest of the passage, this narrative in chapter 11, the whole rest of it works around commentary of that, proof of that, and illustration of that, him being the life. Chapter 10 ended, if you remember, with the Jewish authorities trying to arrest Yeshua. It says, again, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands and went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there He remained. And many came to Him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in Him there. (coughs) So, the disciples and Yeshua are in this place across the Jordan where John the Baptist came and showed up baptizing. This is about 93 miles from Jerusalem. Not a bad trip, but remember, they're on foot. Okay, So it's a four-day journey. They're having an effective ministry. Many people are coming to believe in Him, and they're just having a great time. Then all of a sudden, a messenger shows up, calls Yeshua, so I got a message from you from... uh, Mary and Martha, they want you to know that the one who you love is sick. Now, he knew they were talking about Lazarus. And so, he waited for two days. Didn't do anything, just kept on with the ministry, doing what he was doing there. He waited two days. After two days, he said, let's go up to Judea again. And the disciples all kind of freaked out. No, that's not a good idea. They want to kill you over there. Let's not go back there. Don't worry about Lazarus. He'll be all right. You said he's sleeping. He'll wake up. It'll all be fine. And then the Lord looks at him and says, Lazarus has died. Okay, I want you guys to get that. And they're like, well, then what's the point anyway? All right? And so they're worried. And then Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with them. They don't mean with Lazarus. They mean with the Lord. Okay, the Lord. In other words, they had this in their mind. If you go back there, you're going to die. They want to kill you. Don't do that. Thomas says, let's go, we'll die with them. Now, this section that we're going to look at this morning stresses Yeshua's love for Lazarus. He loved him, but he let him die. That doesn't fit with our idea of God's love, does it? You know what God's love for us means? He wants everything what we want, right? Whatever we want, He wants us to have. That's what it means. But you know what? We really need to be careful not to measure the love of God for us by our prosperity 
or by our physical well-being. And we tend to do that. Of course God loves me. Look at what He's given me. Or He doesn't love me because look what He didn't give me. Listen, if that were the measure of God's love, then He must have hated the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul wasn't <laughs> healthy, wealthy, prosperous kind of him. He spent most of his time in the jail getting beat, getting stoned, getting you know, beat with rods. He, he didn't have the health, wealth, prosperity gospel life. <clears throat> he didn't preach that. If you want to measure God's love, you, you know, when you question, I'm not sure God loves me, here's how you find, here's why you look to the love of God. Look to the cross. He sent His Son to die that you could live eternally. That is the love of God. It's not measured by your prosperity, how easy you have in life, how great things are for you. He demonstrated His love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we can break this 11th chapter down like this. The first 16 verses deal with the setting and background. And we looked at that last week. Verses 17 through 33 that we're going to look at today focus on Yeshua's dialogue with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And then verses 34 through 44 describe the trip to the tomb and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Let's start at verse 17. It says, Now when Yeshua came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Now, what we have to notice here in verse 17 is the scene shifts. In verse 16, they were in Perea, the other side of the Jordan River. Now they're in Bethany. So what you have here in the white spaces here, or on the slide, I guess it's actually the black spaces, you have a four days journey. All right, verse 16, they're in Perea. Verse 17, now they're in Bethany. All right, they're four days away. So they made this four-day trip. Now, four days in between these verses. You wouldn't see that, but you got to... I mean, that's just the narrative. That's how it flows. Now, he said he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. This is an important detail in the Jewish context because it expresses the finality of his death. See, according to cultural traditions, the Jews believe that the soul hovered over the body after you died for about three days, until you started decomposing. Then the soul said, oh, I'm not going back there. And it just left, okay? So that was, that was how they thought. So he says, I'm going to make sure, we'll say four days, the body's in decomposition, no question that he's dead. Now, <clears throat> now had Yeshua left Perea as soon as he heard about Lazarus' death, he'd have only been in the tomb for two days. And so, you know, they're the question, well, the spirit was still hovering around the body. No, they want to make sure. He wants us to make sure this guy's dead. Okay? And dead to the point the body stinks. There's decomposition taking place. All right. <clears throat> it says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. This is an editorial comment by the author Lazarus. The literal translation reads, Bethany was 15 stada from Jerusalem, which is about a mile and three-quarter, all right? And that puts us in the modern-day city of El Azariah, the modern Arabic name for this village where Bethany used to be. Now, Lazarus probably points this out to underline the risk that Yeshua's taken, all right? They want to kill him in Jerusalem. He's going back to Bethany. This is just a mile and three-fourths from Jerusalem. So he's risking his life 
to go back here. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, the sisters and their deceased brother Lazarus must have been a pretty well-to-do family. Because, you know, this funeral has drawn a lot of attention. A lot of people from Jerusalem have come out to join them and console them. Now, one thing I want you to see here, the term Jews here is used very uncharacteristically here. Normally when we read Jews in this letter, it refers to the enemies of Christ. This is just talking about people from Jerusalem. All right, These are not particularly enemies in this context. They're just the residents of Jerusalem who have come out to mourn. It was back then and still is now the custom of the Jews to bury their dead as soon as they're dead. All right, They don't do like us, lay them around, leave them laying around for a while. Those who die a natural death, like Lazarus, they would wash their bodies in preparation for burial. They'd anoint them with oils, they put herbs on them, they'd wrap them up in cloths and stick them in a cave somewhere usually. They didn't bury them in the ground, they put them in a cave somewhere. But those who died from violent deaths, they're not washed because they had this idea that blood needs to accompany the body to the grave. So they wouldn't wash the blood off. And Yeshua will not be washed after His death. So the ritual of mourning would begin immediately following the burial. They take them out, procession, bury them, come back and start the mourning. Now according to customs of the first century Judea, men and women walked separately to the procession. All right, <clears throat> they, did a, they separated a lot of things back then, but Barclay writes this, I thought this was interesting. He says, one curious custom was that the women walked first, for it was held that since women, by her first sin, brought death into the world, she ought to lead the mourners to the tomb. In other words, just to remind you women, this is all your fault. You know, you lead the procession to the tomb. All right. <clears throat> well, after the burial, a deep mourning would last for seven days. And I mean a deep mourning. They're, they're talking wailing, you know, yelling, screaming, crying. I mean, they actually hired people. They had people in the time who were professional mourners. And so you would hire some professional mourners to come to, because you get wore out lamenting like this for seven days, you know, to keep this thing going. But they'd carry this on, and then after the seven days of this loud, intense weeping, they would mourn for another 30 days. During a time of wailing and mourning, it would involve eulogies, remembrances, you know, different people would, they'd stop screaming loud enough for someone to get up and, you know, say some nice things about the person, share stories, try to comfort one another at that time. You know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, how different this is from our day. You know, we have a one-hour service and maybe a snack afterwards and that's it, you know. I mean, they spent seven days together just lamenting, mourning, weeping. It was a big deal to them. All right? So, very different than in our culture. It says, so when Martha heard that Yeshua was coming, she went to meet Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, how Martha heard that he was coming, we don't know. You know, he didn't call her. He didn't give her a text. I'm almost in the village, you know. He must have sent a disciple ahead to tell her. And the reason was he didn't want to go into the village. You know, he's, he's trying to be a little incognito here because they want to kill him. So he's trying to keep things down, you know, quiet. So he sends someone ahead. Hey, Yeshua's outside the village. So she gets up, you know, and it says Mary remained in the house. And, and uh, some commentators see Mary was mad at him because he... Mary didn't know. Just read the rest of the story, okay? She didn't know he was there. 
Someone told Martha, so Martha went out. And what we, what's interesting in this section is that Mary and Martha, what we see of them in this text in John 11, is very characteristic of what we see elsewhere about them. Remember where else we find Mary and Martha? Anybody remember? It's in Luke. Luke 10, 38. says, Yeshua entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. That's our Martha. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So he comes to the house, Mary's out, he's teaching, and Mary's out there listening to the teaching. And Martha's back there cooking and getting dinner ready and doing all this stuff. You know, <laughs> and, and Martha's getting aggravated. I'm Mary sitting out there listening to the teaching. I'm back here getting everything ready. And so she comes out and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? What did he tell her? Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen the necessary thing. She's learning at my feet. That's what's important. You need to just kind of chill out a little bit. You know what's funny about this text? You see anything missing in this text? Huh? Lazarus not. Why? I mean, this is Martha and Mary and Lazarus. No mention of Lazarus. None of the other gospel writers mention Lazarus. He wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this gospel. I mean, they don't mention him. This is a, we're going to see a very significant thing happen, not this week, next week. Lazarus raises from the dead after four days. Not a mention of it, any of the other gospels. Why is that? <clears throat> I don't know. Just ask him. <clears throat> So this is the Mary, this is the Martha that he goes to meet who has cooked dinner for him. This was probably a couple years in, into his ministry, about two years in when he went here and had this dinner with them. And so we see that Martha is a servant and Mary's a student. Now sitting at his feet here is a Hebraism for discipleship. In other words, she's a student. She's trying to learn. But Martha's a servant. Mary's a student. Hang on to that because we'll come back to that. Martha said to Yeshua, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I think we're all aware of the fact she means he wouldn't have died this soon, right? He's going to die, you know, but not this soon, all right? George Bernard Shaw put it this way. The statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one dies. I think we forget that sometimes. But look, people, death, everybody's going to die. All right? So Lazarus died. Well, this sentence is a second-class conditional sentence, which is called contrary to fact. It could be read like this. If you had been here with us, which you were not, my brother would not have died, which he did. Okay? So, We're not told in this text whether Martha knew that he waited two days before he even started out in the journey. We don't know that. She would have known approximately how long it took for the messenger to reach him and how long it took for them to get back. Still, you know, I don't think there's any indication of rebuke in this statement. I think this is just genuine regret. I don't think she's upset. I think she's just sad. You know, some say that the messengers that brought the word to Yeshua returned to Mary and Martha and told them that Yeshua said, your brother's not going to die. 
But where do they get that from? Well, I guess it'd be from this text. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Yeshua heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. So the messengers bring the word, and they hear him say, this is not the death. So they go back to Mary and Martha and said, don't worry, your brother's not going to die. Yeshua said he's not going to die. There's several problems with that view. Okay, First of all, it depends on a one-day travel time between Perea and Bethany, and that's not true. It's a four-day travel time. You know, people have their geography off and think it's a one-day trip. If those messengers left immediately, they would arrive two days after Lazarus was dead. So I don't think it would be too comforting to tell the sisters, the Lord said your brother won't die. Yeah, it's good. He's been in the grave two days already. So that doesn't help me a whole lot, you know. And if that was the case, you know, I think that what Martha would have said to him is, why did you say our brother wouldn't die when he did die? She didn't say any of that stuff. Instead of saying, you know, Lord, if you'd have been here. I don't think Martha has any question about the Lord's ability to heal the sick because she'd seen him do that all his life. But what Martha seems to limit here is his power to do it by a distance. You know, if you had been here, you could have done it. But why did he need to be there? I mean, Yeshua had healed both the centurion's servant and the nobleman's son at a distance by the spoken word. Did she think, did she really understand what's going on here, that he had to come there to heal him? I don't see what Martha says here, like I said, as a rebuke. I think it's just an expression of grief. It's an expression of frustration. If only you had been here. You know, I think most of us have no doubt thought just as Mary thought in this trial. You ever gone through a trial, whatever it be, a sickness, a death, an accident, and said, if only, if only I wouldn't have done this, or if only they wouldn't have done that, things would be different. You ever been there? If only. That's not something a Calvinist says. Okay? It's not if only. The sovereign Lord of the universe controls all things, even our circumstances. So there's no if only, so don't worry about that. Go on with it. Deal with it. Well, Martha goes on to say, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, He'll give you. What is she saying here? What does she mean by this? Some say that this is Martha expressing her faith in our Lord's ability to raise the Lazarus from the dead even now. You think that's what she's saying? I don't think so. Because when Yeshua tells Martha, your brother will rise again, what's she say? Yeah, I know, at the end, at the last time, he'll rise. But not now. And when Yeshua instructs them, you know, when they go to the tomb and he says, roll away the stone, no, no, Lord, don't do that. He stinks. He's been in the grave four days. So I don't see this as her confidence in resurrection that, Lord, even now you can raise him from the dead. Maybe what Martha is saying here is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. He would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Maybe, just maybe she's saying, I know that you really even need, didn't even need to be here. You know, God gives you whatever you ask. You could have 
healed him from a distance. So, obviously, it's his, your will that he died. Now, like I said, nobody seems to really know what she's saying here. Everybody's got these different opinions. That's just my opinion, so it's not worth a whole lot, but that's what I think. I think she's just saying, Lord, you could have done it, you didn't, so obviously, this is what you want. Yeshua said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, he's referring to what he's about to do that day. But Martha thought he's talking about the end of the age, right? And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know what I love about this? This is Martha the servant. And she knows her eschatology. Okay? She's got her doctrine right. You say, well, Mary's the student and Martha's the servant. Martha knows theology. She's got it down. She goes, oh, I know he's going to rise again in the last day. How did she know that? Yeshua had taught it. We already went over this. John 6.40 For this is the will of My Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. Okay? So she's saying in the resurrection on the last day because Yeshua had already taught her I'll raise Him up in the last day. The last day is a phrase that only occurs in this Gospel. It's used in 639, 640, 644, 654, 737, 1124, 1248. You get all that? It's in the notes. So what is Yeshua talking about when He says the last day? What's He going to rise up? Well, He's referring to the resurrection here. And He tells us that this resurrection is going to happen on the last day. That's clear, right? Everybody got that? Okay, here's where the argument comes in. When's the last day? The last day of what? That's what we should be asking when you read the last day. The last day of what? Right? The last day of everything? The traditional view is held by most of the church without a doubt is that the resurrection takes place at the end of time. The last day of time as we know it. The last day of the world as we know it. That's when it happens. Now let me just say here that the Bible does not speak of the end of time. Nowhere in the Bible do we read the expression the end of time. The Bible speaks of the end time and the time of the end, which refer to an end of an age, not the end of time. See, if you hold this traditional belief, that the resurrection is at the end of all time. And when you go to a funeral and they say, well, they're in a better place right now, where are they? They're not in heaven. They haven't been resurrected yet. So where are these people? See, it's not a very consistent theology to say, well, the resurrection happens at the end of, time, end of all time, and yet say our relatives are in heaven. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Now, to the Jews, time was divided into two great periods, the Mosaic Age and the Messianic Age, all right? During the Second Temple period, they distinguished between two types of Olam. Olam Hazah, this world, the age of this world, and the Olam Haba, the world to come. Now, the Olam Hazah, or this world, is characterized by darkness, wickedness, sin, and death, it is called night. The Olam Haba, or the world to come, as it's called by the rabbis, was known as a time of joy, peace, light, eternity. 
the rabbis connected the Olam Haba and the resurrection. So according to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Well, the scriptures testify that the time of the resurrection was the last day of the Old Covenant. We know this happened in AD 70 because that's when the Old Covenant ended. That's when the temple was shut down. That was the last time they ever sacrificed. That was the end of the Old Covenant. And the disciples understood that the fall of the temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of the Old Covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. Daniel talked about this back in Daniel 12. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until this time. That's the same thing Matthew 24 talks about, the great tribulation. That's what Daniel's talking about. Time never like there was before. At that time, your people, who are Daniel's people? Jews. At that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Now watch what he says in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. It's resurrection. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, when did Daniel say this resurrection was to take place? He tells us in verse 7. He says, And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. That's Matthew talks about that three and a half years. That's the time of tribulation. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people. Who is that? That's the destruction of Jerusalem. The holy people are the Jews. That's their destruction in AD 70. He says, as soon as that happens, all these events will be completed. So as soon as the city is destroyed, as soon as the temple is destroyed, all these events, including the resurrection, will happen. So we know when the resurrection happened. It happened at the end of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant age, we know that happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Now, with some exceptions, such as the Sadducees, who didn't believe in a resurrection, most Judeans and Galileans believed in a resurrection at the end of the age. The Tanakh taught this promise of a resurrection. Job talks about it, Job 19. David talks about it, Psalm 16. Daniel talked about it, we just saw. Isaiah talks about it, he said in 26.19, he says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So the Jewish belief in the resurrection was that in the last day, there was going to be a resurrection. This is affirmed in 2 Maccabees. This is an apocryphal book. But in 2 Maccabees 7, we have the story of the martyrdom of the seven brothers during the persecution of the 2nd century B.C. Syrian Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 2 Maccabees 7, 9, the second brother cries out. They're torturing him. And he cries out during torture. And when he was at his last breath, he said, You accursed wretch! You dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will rise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for His law. So they believed this was a typical Jewish belief. They believed in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. All right, so Martha goes on and says to him, I know He's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
Martha's a good Jewess. She believed that there's going to be something after death. The Scriptures made this clear. She apparently thinks that Yeshua is offering words of comfort. Your brother's going to rise. Oh, I know someday, off in the future, he will arise on the last day. But that's not what he meant. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So, here Yeshua, for the fifth time, uses this I am statement. Now, Yeshua identifies himself with the significant and symbolic words I am. In the Greek, it's ego eme, which means, it just reminds us that he is talking about Yahweh's revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, where God says, I am who I am. This is the Tetragrammaton. This is the sacred name of God. And Yeshua is saying, I am. I'm God. And I'm the resurrection. Listen, no one other than God could claim this or could say what He says, that I'm the resurrection and the life. Nobody can say that. He is. This is a claim to deity. I'm God, He tells her. I am the resurrection. Yeshua tells her of the present realization of what she had only expected on the last day. Yeshua was saying that if one has the life that I have, <clears throat> in other words, Martha, here's what you have to realize. If you're related to me, I'm the resurrection. If you believe in me, I'm the resurrection. There's an identity between the individual who trusts me and me. I'm your representative head. I'm your federal head. And you are in me and I am in you. And I am the resurrection. If you're in me, you have life. The life is in me. The life you share is my life. You have resurrection life. He wanted Martha to think about the person who would do the resurrecting, not the resurrection as an event. He's not saying, I am an event. I'm life. I'm the one who provides it. The additional phrase here, and the life, is questioned by some people because it's omitted in some manuscripts. Um, Surprisingly, an early papyrus manuscript, uh, P45, and some old Latin Syriac versions omit the words and the life. But the US, the UBS3 gives their inclusion of it a B rating. In other words, they have these people who rate manuscripts, okay? And there's a miss, something missing here, something's added here. And so they rate. You know, they said, well, no, I think this is B that it should be there. But USB4, which is kind of the standard for you want to hold to, gives the inclusion an A rating. In other words, that belongs in there. All right, though it's missing from some script, we look at all the manuscripts together. You realize we don't have any originals, okay? We have copies. So we compare all the copies and they say, you know, this one is definitely better. So they're saying it's in there, all right? And the life is a statement related to verse 26. And we'll see that. The believer who is alive spiritually will never die spiritually. So whoever receives the gift of life through belief in Christ Yeshua will never die a spiritual death. That's eternal life. The life that Yeshua speaks of here is a life that comes from above and is begotten through the Spirit. They're going to receive the life. And He says to her, whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's talking to her here about Lazarus. Okay? Whoever believes in Me, though he die. Lazarus died. He's dead. 
yet shall he live. And then he adds this, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, now he's talking to Martha. In the case of Lazarus, we have the picture of resurrection. In the case of Martha, we have the picture of life. This is Martha. Everyone who lives, she's alive, she believes in him, she'll never die. And he's talking about spiritually. Then Yeshua asked Martha, do you believe this? What is the this? It's the statement about Yeshua himself that he gives in verse 25. He tells Mary, or Martha, that he is the resurrection and the life. But that's not all he asks her to believe. Yeshua is saying, I am the person who guarantees eternal life to everyone who believes in me. And that's what trusting in Christ is about. He's guaranteeing eternal life. Do you trust me for that life? Most people would say, I trust Christ for that life, but I have to also do A, B, C, so you're not really trusting him. Yeah, he's got to do major stuff, but I got to help out. So it's you and him together. It's a partnership. No. See, when you say something like that, you're saying what he did is just not enough. It's helpful, but it's not enough. I have to help him out. Wow, you're pretty special. But that's where most people are at. I have to do this, this. No, Christ paid our debt in full. He did it himself. He is the guarantor of eternal life. You just have to believe in him. That's what it's about. I like what James Boyce says here. He says, Yeshua did not ask her, do you feel better now, Martha? Have you found these thoughts comforting? Do you feel your old optimism returning? He goes on to say this, according to Jesus, it was not how she felt that was important. It was what she believed. And that's what he asked her. Do you believe this? Because people, what we have to understand is our belief is so important because it's our belief that will get us through the worst trials in life. What we believe, that's going to get us through. It's not our emotion. Our emotions are going to be all over the place. Our feelings will be everywhere. But what do you believe? Do you believe what I'm saying? And she says, yeah, I do. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What's really interesting here is John tells us in John chapter 20 what the purpose of this book is. We've gone over that many times, remember? These signs have been written that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life through His name. So, basically, what she's saying here is the same thing. This is the purpose of the book. John said, I wrote this book so you'll believe in Yeshua the Christ. He's the Son of God. And she says, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God. Oh, Mary, you got the purpose of the book. Good. That's what it was written for. And she believes him. Martha's statement is one of the clearest recognitions of Yeshua's Messiah that we find in this Gospel and in the whole New Testament. She uses several different titles here to express her faith. She says, the Christ, which was the Greek translation of Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, which is a title used in the Tanakh of the Messiah, and He Who Comes, which was another title in the Tanakh of God's promises, the promised one to bring the new age of righteousness. 
So she clarified that what she meant by Messiah wasn't the popular idea of a revolutionary who was going to overthrow Rome. She's talking about one sent from heaven, one that God had sent to redeem His people. People, please understand this. Martha is a servant. But she has her theology down. Okay? So while Mary's sitting at the Lord's feet all this time studying, and Martha's serving, she must be picking up some stuff while she's working, okay? Because she's got her theology down. She does. There's no doubt about it. Now when she had said this, so she gives her statement of faith, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. Why does she do it in private? Well, I think a couple reasons. She wants Mary to be able to spend some time with the Lord without everyone else, you know, butting in. You know, she just had some quality time with the Lord. Mary, you need to go talk to him now. The teacher's here. He's calling for you. <clears throat> but maybe also, she's aware that all these Jews who have come from Jerusalem. Maybe they don't need to know the Lord's here because they'll run back and, you know, this, they want to kill him. So let's try to keep this quiet. All right? They want to keep it quiet. He says, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. The New American Standard Bible Study Bible has this comment on this. It says, a significant description to be given by a woman. In other words, calling him teacher is significant that a woman says this. He says, the rabbis would not teach women. But Yeshua taught them frequently. So she calls him teacher. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. That seems as though Mary remains in the house because she doesn't know what's going on. You know, the commentators want to pick on her. Ah, oh, she's mad. Lord didn't come heal her brother. Well, as soon as she hears, guess what? She's up and out of there going to meet the Lord. Now, Yeshua had not yet come into the village. He's still out there where he talked with Mary, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. He's trying to keep that low profile, keep away from the Jews. All right? Verse 31, When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. Oh, there goes the secret. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So... The low profile, the private meeting with Mary is not going to work out because all these mourners see her go and they're going to follow her. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's bad as far as Mary having some quiet time with the Lord, but you know what? It's going to be really good because there's a whole crowd going to witness this resurrection in a little bit. All right? So I think that's the reason they're following her out. You know, this is not going to be a private miracle. All these mourners are going out to the tomb. And they're going to see something they've never seen before. <clears throat> now when Mary came to where Yeshua was and saw Him, she fell at His feet saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. We heard that before, didn't we? She falls at His feet. As soon as she sees the Lord, she runs up and she falls prostrate at His feet. Let me tell you something that's interesting. Mary is found three times in the Gospel records. Once in Luke, twice in John. Every time Mary's mentioned, she's at his feet. What's he trying to tell us? Well, sitting at his feet is Hebraism for discipleship. She's trying to learn. She's a, this picture's a student. Uh, notice what Paul teaches us in Acts 22.3. He says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, 
brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So Paul is taught by Gamaliel, and he, he makes it, he says, I've been educated at his feet. Again, that's a picture of disciples. I'm learning, I'm sitting at the feet, learning from this man. We also see this in Luke 8.35. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Yeshua and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Yeshua, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Here's this demon-possessed man sitting at the feet of Yeshua. Now he's a disciple. Now he's trying to learn. This is reminiscent of a Jewish saying found in M. Abbott 1.4. It says, Lest your house be a meeting house for the sages, and sit amidst the dust of their feet, and drink in their words with thirst. So sitting at their feet, again, this is a picture of discipleship. I'm trying to learn from them. So Mary's at Yeshua's feet. She's a disciple. And what is so unusual about this is that many of the rabbis actively discouraged women from learning. The Mishnah included some pretty cynical thoughts about women. May the words of the Torah be burned. They should not be handed over to women. In other words, we'll take this book and burn it before we let women learn anything from this. You think that's bad? Well, (laughs) Rabbi Eliezer in AD 90 said this, If a man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is as if, though he taught her lechery, now, do you know what lechery is? <laughs> you know what lechery is? It's offensive sexual desire, lustfulness. In other words, you know, they just really frowned on teaching women. In the first century, the, the role of women disciples was very much debated. Most rabbis didn't have female disciples. But Hillel, who was considered a real radical, he did. And the Bible never specifically says that Yeshua had Talmudim that were women or women disciples. But it does say that seven different women sat at his feet. And I think that Yeshua, unlike many rabbis of his day, he had female Talmudim, disciples. He taught women. You know, our society is so down on Christianity. If it wasn't for Christianity, you know, they're supporting, you know, the feminist movement supports Islam I'm like, how crazy are you? You know, women have no rights in Islam. They're slaves. They're considered property. Christianity is the only religion that treats women equally with men on the same footing, and yet we're so much attacked. It's like there's an insanity about liberalism. Well, Mary's only recorded words in the Gospel are given in verse 32, and they echo what Martha already said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You think these two in the four days previously discussed this together? Saying it's to each other. Oh, if only the Lord would have been. Oh, Lazarus would still be alive. They kept saying this back and forth, so they both say the exact same thing to him. If only you had been here. When Yeshua saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, this verse is a transition verse. It belongs to both this paragraph, and the next. It expresses Yeshua's awareness of and His response to Mary's grief. In expressing awareness, it belongs with verses 28-32. through But in responding, it belongs to verses 34 
through 44, and we'll look at that next time. But in both verses, 33 and 38, Yeshua exhibits a strong display of emotion. Now, scholars have found the Greek in these passages very difficult to translate. The difficulty is what is being rendered in Greek seems to be two Semitic idioms that express deep internal emotion. And debate is over whether this emotion is sorrow or anger. And by far, the scholars want to pick anger. He's angry. The Lord's deep anger here. Deeply moved and greatly troubled. Deeply moved is from the Greek word embrimuomai, which means move with the deepest emotions or deeply distressed. And the words greatly troubled are from the Greek tarasso, which means shudder or sigh. The verbs which appear both in 33 and 38 can have the basic meaning implying an articulate expression of anger, indignation, or sorrow. He was deeply moved in his spirit, is literally snorted in the spirit. It's an idiom that's usually used of anger. And that's why, you know, commentators and scholars go through here, well, these verbs are normally used of anger. They're using the Septuagint of anger. They're using other texts of anger. But in this context, I think a translation showing deep emotion is to be preferred. S. Lewis Johnson mentions uh, Professor Matthew Black, who was for many years principal of St. Mary's College at the University of St. Andrews. He went into a detailed studies of these terms, and it was his conclusion that the idea here is deeply moves the sense of he's disturbed over the events. It's not anger. It's sorrow. It's deep emotion. You know, many commentators take the view that He's angry here. Why is he angry? What's he angry about? Well, they say he's angry over death. They say that death is a result of sin, and Yeshua's anger arose because there's a profound awareness of all the hurt and tragedy that comes from sin. Now, this assumes that physical death is a result of sin. Right? He's angry because Lazarus died, and sin caused this, so he's just angry at sin and angry at death. Well, the problem is, I don't believe that physical death is a result of sin. I think physical death is a result of being human. Okay, I don't think we ever have had immortality. Now, you say, well, Romans 5.12 says that death came as a result of sin. It does say that. And death through sin. As a result of Adam's sin, Adam died. But it's speaking here not about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Most commentators say he's talking about physical death here. Well, that's not true. I don't think that's true at all. Let's go back to the original, back in Genesis, back here, 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So as a result of Adam's sin, he died. But is it speaking of physical or spiritual? Well, most commentators say he's talking about physical death here, but... They say that physical death is a result of sin. But is that true? I don't see it. I don't see it. He says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Did Adam die that day? Not physically. He lived 800 years beyond that. But he did die spiritually. He died a spiritual death. He was separated from God because of his sin. He was put out of the garden. The garden represented the presence of God. The dwelling place of God, and he was put out of it. Spiritual death is separation from God who is life. 
So since the text in Genesis is dealing with spiritual death, I think so is the text in Romans 5. And also the comparison in Romans 5 is between Adam and Christ. What we lost in Adam, we regained in Christ. If death referred to here as physical, then having gained in Christ what we lost in Adam, we would never die. Think about this. Is physical death a result of the fall or just being human? See, scientists tell us that every human being begins to die physically from the moment of birth. Even while we're growing old, you know, we're developing, but cells are dying and, you know, the evidence begins to show your teeth are decaying, your hair falls out, your eyes go bad, your joints ache. That's age, right? Now, did Yeshua age? Well, he was a baby and then he was a man. So, yeah, he aged, okay? Was he sinless? Yes. So, aging is part of being human. If he had not died on the cross for us, I believe he would have died of old age. I just think that's what humanity is. We die. At the present time in my studies, I just think physical death is part of being human. Adam's sin caused spiritual death. That was the result of the fall. So I don't think the Lord here is angry at sin or death. I think He realizes... You know, the pain that these people around him are dealing with, and the verb tarasso is in 11.33, is translated greatly troubled. It's also used as Yeshua contemplates his death. So whether his emotion was anger or grief or a combination of both, I think this passage allows us to reflect on the depth of Yeshua's human feelings. Reminding us that yes, he is fully divine, he is God, but he's also man. He's fully man, and therefore he experienced all the depths of emotions that we feel. Whatever the reason, it's clear that the death of Lazarus and the grief of his family and friends stirred Yeshua deeply. This is a very important aspect of this story to see our Lord here so grieved. The God whom Yeshua reveals. Now remember that. Yeshua's purpose is to reveal Yahweh. And the one He reveals cares deeply about us. Look at John 14.9. Yeshua said to him, Have I been so long with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What does that tell us? He's revealing the Father. He's demonstrating the Father. When you see Him, what He does, you see the Father doing. And you know what this tells us? In this text, our God cares about us. He is not apathetic. He is sympathetic. And that's important because the Greeks described their gods by the word apatheia. We translate that into English as apathetic. It's the word pathos with an alpha primitive that means no feeling. The, to the Greek, their gods had no feeling. The gods didn't care less about them. All right? They were apathetic. But that is not how the Bible portrays our God. Our God cares about us. He shares our pain. In a real sense, God through Christ grieves more deeply than we do. This story pictures what Hebrews chapter 4, 15, and 16 declares. But we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows exactly what we're going through. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come to God in prayer. You know why? He understands exactly what you're dealing with. As a man, he knows those emotions. He knows those questions. He knows those pains. He understands. He felt every pain. Not only the pain of the loss of his dear friend Lazarus, not only the pain that Mary and Martha were dealing with because of the loss, not only the pain of all the rest of the people there who had lost their friend, he hurt because they hurt. Yeshua sympathizes with our every weakness. If you get nothing else out of this text, get Yeshua revealing the Father to us as a God who deeply cares about us. He is not an apathetic God. He is sympathetic. And He asks us to come to Him in prayer because He knows what we're dealing with. He knows the emotions because He is the God man. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the God that You reveal to us in this text, Lord. Not someone who is apathetic as the Greek gods who didn't care about their people, but someone who loves us deeply, who hurts when we hurt, who cares about our feelings. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. We love You. Amen.